All right, I want to continue our study this morning on uh, Satan's strategies for our lives. And uh, this week we're going to talk about Satan as the ruler. Week one we talked about him as the deceiver. Week two we talked about him as the destroyer. This week we're going to talk about him as the ruler. And again, some would say we shouldn't talk about him, but when we, uh, when we don't talk about him, we give him an advantage in our life. And uh, that by acknowledging him, some would say that we're giving him opportunity to work in our minds. Well, if that's all we did, if that's all we talked about, and if we began to make Satan the focus on him, yes, I would agree that that is not the right thing to do. Our focus needs to be on Jesus, as he already has defeated Satan. So we are, as I said at the beginning of the service, we are the winner, and we will win, as Jesus has already defeated Satan. But yet we have to learn in our life, we have to learn to keep an eye on our adversary but our focus must be on Christ. And, uh, and I'll tell you up front that the answer to defeating Satan's rulership in our lives is only accomplished as we submit ourselves to Jesus. It is only accomplished as we submit ourselves to Christ. But on the other hand, by ignoring him and choosing to remain ignorant of his tactics and his strategies, that we are exposing ourselves to his ruthless and cruel and destructive forces, and we are no match for him in our own right. We will not stand against Satan in our own power. We have to have Christ. Therefore, a careful examination and a study of his strategies and his tactics are important for us in our own personal lives, in our homes, our families, our church, our community, that we understand what he's up to. When we understand what he's up to, then we can be better, pre be better prepared to handle his attacks. So this week we're going to talk about Satan as being the ruler and it's given to us in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and a couple other verses here, that Christ gave rulership of this world to the enemy. He has authority to be the ruler of this air and of this kingdom down here on earth. Ephesians 2, chapters, uh, chapter 2, 1 and 2, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So Satan is the ruler of this world. He has, given, he has been given authority to rule this world. John chapter 12, verse 31, it says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Then John later in chapter 14, 30 and 31, it says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming this is Jesus speaking. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so the world may know that I love the Father. But he is making comment and making fact that the ruler of the world is coming, who is Satan at this point. But we, as Christians, real true followers of Christ, those that are truly Christian people, we are citizens of heaven. We are not citizens of this world. We obey God's laws and heaven's laws, and we submit to God. And Satan wants us to serve him and worship him as the ruler of this kingdom. So the battle here is between who are we going to submit to? Are we going to submit to the ruler of this world? Or are we going to submit to the ruler of the universe? The ruler of the universe has ultimate control. But we live in this world. And while we're here, we are under that realm and under that authority. Understand here that Satan is not a creator He's only an imitator. 
And he, he imitates godly principles that he has twisted and that he has contorted to meet his deceptive strategies that he uses to deceive people. And as it gets closer to the end times, we're told in Scripture that even the elect may be deceived. And the elect are those that should know better. The elect are many of us in this room today. Many of us in leadership should know better. But there may be a time, as in Matthew 24, uh, chapter, verse, chapter 24, verses 24 and 25, it says, For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. And see, Jesus is speaking here, and he says, See, I have told you ahead of time. So here is a perfect example of why we need to talk about Satan to a degree. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm telling you about this up front. I'm telling you about this so that you will be prepared to understand there will be false Christs and false prophets and there will be false teachings and there will be false impressions and, and lots of false things that Satan imitates. His contorted, twisted, demented way of thinking will get in and will take biblical scriptures and biblical principles and twist them around and he will make it so enticing that even the elect may be deceived. Do you see that happening around us already? Do you see it happening in some spiritual leaders already and how they're getting God's word and they're twisting it to make it easy to listen to sometimes? Making, making it maybe so comfortable that, that there are no rules anymore. There are no absolutes anymore. It's because we don't want to offend people. We want people to like us. We don't want, pastors don't want to be uh, talked about at Sunday dinners about being a mean guy. They want to be liked and they want to be talked and favorable about and they want big churches they want big congregations and they want big offerings and and all of that kind of rolls into satan's twisted distorted methodology of twisting god's word into something that is palatable to the ear of the world that wants itchy ears the world that wants to have answers that they want to hear and we all know that if we don't like the answer when we were kids if we went to mom and mom said no what we do we went to dad you know, we wanted to get somebody else that would give us what we wanted to hear. We wanted that answer. Is that, godly? Is, that, is that godly? No, not necessarily. I think that is a way that we want to avoid the truth sometimes. And we'll go to, any, we'll go to other, other extremes and other lengths to avoid hearing the truth of God. And therefore, we become a part of Satan's strategy. We become, we're falling a part of his, of his deceptive philosophies of who really is the boss. Who is the boss? Am I submitting again to the Satan, to the, to the leader of this world, or am I submitting to God? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And he goes on in verse 11 and 12, that same chapter of 1 Peter, Dear friends, I urge you, do you hear this? I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Dear friends, I urge you. Paul is, or Peter is urging those that he's writing to to be bold and to stand up for what's right. Don't give in to the worldly passions. Abstain. What does abstain mean? 
Anybody know? Don't do it. Abstain. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't give in to the sinful desires, which are what are warring against your soul. See, sin doesn't come in always as something evil. It can come in as something very subtle. It can come in something very easy to, to, to taste, or the initial taste of sin can be very pleasing. But Peter's saying, don't do it. Now, there's a couple messages here that I don't want to get down the rabbit trail too far, but, but for those that have done it, there's always forgiveness. But for those right now that I'm here in this room, I want, to, I want to go down the path of don't do it. Just don't do it. And if you are doing it, stop it. And let's just understand that we need to get our hearts right with God and we need to follow His path. And this is where the battle really heats up because as we live as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, as we live here in this earth that way, the enemy doesn't give up on us. In fact, that makes him more diligent. It makes him more um, wanting to, to come after us. And, and he is patient, by the way. He is biding his time, and he's looking for opportunities to work his strategies into our life. He doesn't have to knock us off our feet the first time. All he needs to get is a wedge, a foothold in our life, just a little bit of a, a, a glimmer, a little bit of a hope. It's like a, it's like a sledge and a wedge. You take a great big piece of, of maple black, a tree, and you don't need to, if you have a sledge and a wedge, you don't need it to, uh, one whack isn't going to split it. But you, put a, you hit it with the axe and put a little sliver in it, and then you put the wedge in the sliver. That's all it takes, a wedge in the sliver, and then you take the sledgehammer and start pounding on, the sl on that wedge, and eventually you won't be long, and you're going to split that log wide open. That's exactly what the enemy is doing with our lives. When we give him a sliver, he takes that wedge of sin, that wedge of guilt, and he'll drive it in and he'll hammer it into us until eventually he'll split us wide open. And that's exactly what he's trying to do. He doesn't have to take one whack. He's very, he's very patient, and he's very, and he's very diligent in his attack on us. So that warns us as mature Christians that don't ever think it's over until it's over. Just because I'm in my 50s or 60s or 70s and I'm a grandparent, and that doesn't mean my battle is over. Your battle is still on, actually. In fact, it may be even more on because you may be more of a person of influence. The person that has the most influence typically has the most battle. Because the enemy wants to knock you out of your seat. He wants to knock you down. He wants to destroy you. And if he can't destroy you, he wants to destroy your influence. So understand that just because we're older Christians in this church, that doesn't take us out of the battle. You're, one, you're still, you're still a, a big target for Satan. And we need to make sure that we understand that. And, and here's a good example of a, of a godly man in the Old Testament that committed some sins. And we all know about David, don't we? King David. And when we think about David's sin, we typically go back and we think about David and Bathsheba. That's the typical sin that we think of about David, isn't it? But David created and David made and conducted a worse sin than that. As, as bad as that, uh, that act of adultery was, a bad, as bad as that was, and, and he was responsible for killing Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband, and then um, the sword never left David's home. Two of his sons were killed, and the baby died. So in that act of sin, David was responsible for four deaths. The baby, Uriah, and then two of his sons. That was pretty bad, wasn't it? 
But yet David had a, a greater sin that, was, that came into David's life. And, it was, and this is given to us in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And we want to see here how Satan influenced David to commit a sin that cost 70,000 of David's own people to die. 70,000 Israelites died because of David's sin. And what is that sin? We want to talk about that. Let's first of all, let's read this. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, starting at verse 1. It says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord, the king, why or are, there not all my, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of fighting men to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. This command was also evil in the sight of God. So he punished Israel. Now skip down to verses 14 through 17. And I'll tell you what the sin was in a minute if you're not catching it, because it may be a little hard to catch right now. But So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn, drawn sword in his hand extended over Israel or Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, sack, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. David said to God, Was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I am the one who sinned and done wrong. These are my sheep. What have they done? O Lord, my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. This sin that David committed here was not a sin of the flesh as was the adultery that he committed and the murder that he committed earlier. But this was a sin of the will. And this is the sin that Satan is using on us today. David's response on his first sin with Bathsheba when Nathan confronted him was given in 2 Samuel 12:13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It was a bad sin. But yet listen to, his, listen to David's repentance on this sin in First Chronicles 21, verse 8. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant, for I have done a very foolish thing. The first sin, I have sinned. The second sin of the will, I have sinned greatly. So there, David must have thought this was even more of a, of, a, of, a, of a harder sin to be forgiven of than the first sin. But yet, it's so important that we see David's heart. David wasn't justifying anything here. David was said, I have sinned greatly. I beg you, I, I, I beg you that you would take away the guilt of your servant, for I have done a very, very foolish thing. And what was the problem? in the first place with counting the men of Israel. 
The first problem is, if you go back to verse 1, we see it. It says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So the problem was, God didn't tell David to make the count. Satan did. And David was listening to the wrong influence of the world. Satan was working in the life of David. But wait, I thought David was a, heart, a man after God's own heart. I thought we heard that. I thought we read that, that David was such a godly man. So how could Satan influence David? See, that, that speaks directly into my life today, and it should speak directly into your life today. You can be the most godly man in the world, but Satan still has an influence on you, whether you like it or not. Understand that when you get a thought in your mind, you must discern it. You must understand where is this coming from. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I'm not going to get tempted. Just because I'm a spirit-filled believer doesn't mean that the enemy is still not going to put an idea in my mind that could cause me to go down a wrong path. We're all susceptible to that. And don't ever think you're not, because if you think you're not, you're deceived. And, if you, and, and you're right then for deception. So I'm not trying to put fear in anybody's heart here. I'm just trying to make everybody aware that we are still in the battle. If King David could have been deceived, then I can be deceived. And you can as well. And the Satan then works on this very subtly on the act of the will and the pride. See, Satan was attacking David in the area of human pride and the control of the will. This census or the counting of the fighting men was something that David gave into Satan's influence so that David could see what he had done, not that what God had done. It became a sin that, that Satan brought into David's heart of the will of a person, the will of a man. And David allowed this, his desire to take precedence over the desire of God. And here's the thing for us, that if Satan can't get into your life by bringing, by bringing all-out deception, if he can't get to you by attacking your body then he goes to the next big target in a man's life, and that is his willpower, his will. Who's going to call the shots in my life? Who's going to be the boss of my life? Is it going to be the Holy Spirit, or is it going to be the desires of my flesh? And that's where Satan will attack you and your willpower. Who's the boss? Satan wants to get control of the will, and he wants to control it. And he may do that through a deceptive spiritual attack like he did with Eve, or by attacking the body as he did with Job. But his ultimate goal is to use whatever tactic he can to get to our willpower, to get to our will, that area of our life that allows us or makes the choices that we make. That's what Satan ultimately is after. See, in the case of David here, he wasn't deceived because he clearly knew what he wanted. And even Joab, who really wasn't a righteous man, came to him and said, David, why are you doing this? This isn't of God. Why are you, make, why are you calling for the count? And David said, I'm doing it anyways. And, and it really, it took, it took him up, upwards of ten months to a year to make this count. This was not something that Joab could do easily, because he had to go through all of Israel to count the fighting men. So this took a, a long period of time, and, and all this time, David is still debating. He's still going with Satan's tactics. Satan is persistent and he's diligent. Uh, David also wasn't suffering anything. There was no, nothing bad going on in David's life, so he can't say that he was suffering. He can't blame this on anything. In fact, he was a very prosperous time in the kingdom. This was a time where he was at the height of his popularity and his, and his success. There was nothing going bad on in David's life at this time. 
The problem here was that earlier on in Israel's history, back in Moses' day, there was a counting. God did call for a counting. God did call for a census to be taken. But that census to be taken was to give glory to God. That was after Israel was delivered from Egypt and Moses was told to count the people so that then they could take a ransom offering and they could give it to God as, a, as an offering, as a sacrifice, to glorify God for the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. But in this case, this was not that at all. This was all about David's pride. This was all about David's willpower. And that's what makes this such a terrible sin. And that's why David um, said, Why, Lord, don't kill the people. They killed 70,000 people. This was a national calamity that was brought on because of one man's pride. David was proud. And he called for a count, and God said no, and David did it anyways. He went against the will of God, and 70,000 innocent people died. You don't think that was a little burden on David's heart? You don't think that caused him some, a little grief? See, pride is the one thing that God absolutely abhors. He cannot stand human pride. Psalm chapter 10, verse 4. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. In Proverbs 8, 13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Pride comes, then comes disgrace. In Proverbs 16:18, Pride goes before the destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. God absolutely hates and detests human pride. There is no negotiation here with God. He will not let you have a little bit. You have to be completely humble before God if you are going to have His Spirit dwell in you. If you have any issue of pride, that is exactly what caused Satan to fall. That's the thing that got him kicked out of heaven. That's the ultimate, that's the first sin. And one of Satan's main strategies is to attack man with this tool of pride in our life in controlling our will. Because as we've already stated, that Satan wants to gain control of our will in order to lead us into making bad choices. Bad choices. And once a bad choice is made, the consequences of the choices are the fruit of those choices for a long time to come in our lives. And Satan loves to see us drag around the weight of bad consequences for bad choices. God forgives. Thank God He forgives. But you know what? We still have the consequences. You still have that. He doesn't deliver us from all the consequences. He delivers us from our sin, but the consequences are still there. And that's what Satan loves to deal with now, because now, and here's the thing from the very beginning. Believe me, if you knew the consequences of your sin were going to be with you all of your life, then I believe we all would have made better choices in the process of the sin. And that's why I'm trying to call out now to young people and for those that are still in that debating area of life, do I sin or not sin? Because every day I have the ability to sin or not sin. Tomorrow, when I go to work, am I going to sin or not sin? At home, am I going to sin or not sin? If you sin, understand you will have consequences. And they will be with you for a long time. Maybe all your life. God will forgive, but the consequences will be there. And that's where Satan loves to play the game with you because he wants to grab those and he wants to hold on to those. And that's, uh, those are the skeletons that Satan will bring out of the closet day in and day out. 
And that's why I'm just, I'm just throwing out a word of caution. I'm throwing out a word of, of hope. And for those that, that haven't committed those, don't do it. <laughs> just don't do it. As, as he said, abstain from sinful desires. Abstain from those and avoid the consequences that come. And many times it's not even the fault of the devil in our lives. It's just our own laziness or lackadaisical attitudes that cause us the problems. We can't blame Satan for everything. Sometimes it's just my own poor choices. And sometimes for some people in my life, he doesn't have to work very hard sometimes because I'm already there ahead of him ready to make the bad, the bad decision, the bad choice. And it's time to stop and it's time to wake up. Living a Christian life is not about the mushy feelings of love. It's about the strong commitment of love, similar to the strong commitment of love in a marriage relationship. If we based our level of commitment in our marriages on the love we feel for our spouse, the divorce rate would be a lot higher than the already tragic rate of over 50%. If I based my love for my wife on how I feel all the time, it would not go well. But because I'm committed to her, because I have made a commitment to her that I will, I will not leave her. I may not always make her happy. I will do my best, but maybe not. But I'm committed to her, and that's the love that has to be there. And that's the same love of commitment that we as a Christian has to have. And that's where it comes about our commitment of the will in a believer's life. And many times, Christians, we, over, or we, don't, under, we don't understand or we underestimate the importance of Christian willpower. We think that just because we're saved, life is going to be easy. No, it's not going to be easy just because I'm saved. I have to stand my ground against the enemy, and I have to put on, and I have to work out my salvation, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And the focus of this will is not about my own personal ability to work out my salvation. It is about having my commitment to God to let him live in me and let him be alive in my life so that he can give me the power to will and to act according to his good purpose. So it's not just about, about me. I can't do it on my own. I can only do it when I give Christ supremacy in my life. I can only do it when I allow him to have first rate in my life. And there are so many Christians today that have an intellectual religion, and that satisfies the mind, but never changes the life. They can talk about the Bible, they can quote the Bible, they can argue about the Bible, but it doesn't change their life because it's intellectual. And then there are other Christians that have an emotional religion that is made up and based on changing feelings. And their Christian life is based on how they feel about life that given day. If they feel good, then God is good. But if they feel bad, then God must have left them. We need to have the balance. We need to have the intellectual knowledge of the Word of God, and we need to have the emotional response of the Holy Spirit. And when we bring those together, then we let the Holy Spirit control the whole man, which includes both the intellect and the heart of man, which includes his feelings and also his knowledge. And Mark chapter 12, verse 30 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The heart is our emotions. 
The soul is the perspective of having eternal life, eternal rewards, or consequences thereof. That's the eternal perspective, is the soul. The mind is the intellect. We must love the Lord with all of our mind, with all of our intellect. And then the strength, there is the will. We must love the Lord with our willpower, with our will. We must not give in to Him. A dedicated Christian prays even when he doesn't feel like it. He serves others with a sense of eternal fulfillment and puts other needs before his own. He reads God's word and continues to increase in the knowledge of God, as it says in Colossians 1.10. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. And he obeys the word of God that he hears. He just doesn't read it, but he obeys it. And this is the kind of Christian life that is powerful and effective. And this is the kind that puts Satan on the run. When Satan knows through proof of your life, not just what you say on Sunday morning, but the proof of your life, when he knows that he is not going to be able to get at you, to toss you and turn you by his buffeting, then you're on a way to victorious Christian living. When he knows that you are going to put your willpower to the test with the, with the grace of God, that you are not going to allow him to come in and tip you upside down. You're saved by first saying, I will as you respond to God's gracious call for salvation. But you grow and serve God daily by saying, Thy will from then on. Did you hear the difference? When I say, Jesus, I accept you, it's your will, it's your choice that's accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. From that point on, though, you must change my will to thy will be done. Thy will at that point in time. Lord, keep me away from that. Keep me away from doing those things I shouldn't do. And keep me doing the things I should be doing. Satan wants you to become independent of God's will. That's his whole strategy. He wants you to become independent and he'll use whatever strategy he can. Sin breaks the unity between God and separates us from his will in our lives. Satan is out to do whatever he can to break that bond, to break that unity. We are dependent on Christ. We're supposed to be. And all Satan is trying to do, if he can't break you down, if he can't break you down through uh, a deceptive philosophy, if he can't get you to believe a cult, if he can't get at you through your strength or your health or your lack of, then the next thing he'll do, his next natural attack, is if he can't break you down, he will build you up and puff you up in your own pride, in your own thinking about how spiritual you are or how mature you are and that you're able to be a good Christian when everyone else is sinning and struggling around you, then he'll bring in that little wedge of pride and he'll get you through that aspect of it. He doesn't care how he gets you as long as he gets you to think that you're in control. My decisions, my concepts, I'm going to run my family, I'm going to run my business, I'm going to run my life. It's about me. And as soon as I, when I start thinking that way, I'm in trouble. And Satan is winning. And that's a very common philosophy, isn't it? I, I did it my way, the old song from Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. What a terrible song. What a terrible philosophy. But that's the philosophy of the world today because that's where Satan is at. So as we conclude this message this morning, what is then our defense against this type of attack in our life? What is it? Your only defense against this type of an attack is your complete submission to Christ. If you go halfway with them, you're not going to win. 
You need to completely submit your life. How do you do that? How do you submit your life to Christ? Have you ever thought about it, Jack? You can come if you would, please. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever, how much time have you actually spent trying to say, Lord, I'm going to commit my life to you? What does that mean? That's a good question. Because I don't know what it means for you. Sometimes I struggle with what it means for me. But it is a, it is a topic that we must, absolutely must address. If you don't know what submitting to Christ means in your life, then you get on your face before God. And you seek Him. And you say, Lord, how can I do that? What does it mean for me to submit my will to you? Is it just your actions? It's part of it. Is it your thoughts? It's part of it. Is it your relationships with people? It's part of it. It really comes down to your will. Why do I do what I do? Why do you do what you do? That's the ultimate answer of submitting to God is your will. Now we have a hope. In John, 1 John first chapter 4, verse 4, it says, You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We will win as we walk in godly principles. And we obey him. We will win. I don't want to make this a message of despair and, and unhope. But I have to make sure that we understand this morning as we conclude that we must submit our will to Jesus this morning. No matter what your circumstances are, whether you're in prosperity or poverty, strength or weakness, health or sickness, it makes no difference. Our focus needs to be on Jesus. And then let him take up the battle against our enemy. And we need to be like King David again. 1 Chronicles 21.8 Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Are you able to do that in your life? Are you able to ask God, really? To repent, really? Really repent? You know what repent means? It means make a change. It doesn't say I'm sorry today and then go out and do what I want to do tomorrow. That's not repenting. such an important word repent 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 make a change we all have areas in our life that we need to make a change in repent get rid of that self, that that unrighteous self-righteousness that we have the unrighteous self-righteousness and we all have it to a degree we all have it. All of us. Repent. So this morning as you contemplate who you are and what you are and your submission and your, your own battle with the Satan when it comes to your will, if you just close your eyes with me, this is a personal thing. I'm not going to have an altar call today but I want you to personally evaluate your life. 
Well, you, you need to personally take accountability of your life. And as you repent, you will find yourself grieving. You will find yourself distraught over the sin. You will see fruit of repentance in your life. See, the nice thing about this Holy Spirit is that he just doesn't throw a blanket of condemnation. No one is condemning anybody in this room. The Holy Spirit, when he convicts, never throws a blanket of condemnation. Never says you're not worthy. But what he does do is that very surgically he takes a knife and he cuts at that sin in your life. And he'll come to you and he'll say, stop that thing. Stop that thing. Make that new. Make that different. Ask forgiveness on that thing. And when you have that level of conviction, that is the Holy Spirit convicting you. Do not run from that. That's not condemnation. There is no more condemnation of those who love Christ. But we do have areas of sin, pockets of area that need to be cleaned out. That's what we're talking about. That's the battle of the will. Dear Jesus, I come before you in Jesus' name. And I ask you, Father, that as we self-examine our own hearts today, Lord, that we would allow the Holy Spirit's convicting power to do just that, convict. That we would not run away from conviction. That we would not avoid it. But Lord, help us to, help us to change because of it. Help us to invite your presence. Help us to invite you to come in and show us the areas in our life where we need to make sure that our will is lining up with your will. That we're not trying to make it our way. We're not trying to make it the way we think it should be. We're not trying to put our spin on it. That's the enemy putting a spin on it. We're trying to read the Word of God and apply the Word of God straight up where we would say, Thy will be done in my life, not my will. But show me, teach me, Encourage me, convict me until I make the changes necessary where you say, okay, okay, you've done it. Now I love you, I bless you. And Lord, you love us so much that you don't let us off the hook. But Lord, now at that point in time, we can move on and there will come a time of refreshing and a time of rejoicing. But Lord, help us first and to make sure that our will is completely surrendered to you. We ask you for that. We thank you for that. We want nothing less in our lives than that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jackie, let's sing that song. And as we're singing, we'll pray and we'll be dismissed. If you would, please.
if you want to come up and pray, the altars are open. We really encourage you. If the Lord's working in any area in your life, don't leave this place until you pray. Don't leave this place until you get something straightened up with God. If His Holy Spirit's convicting powers work on your life, take it seriously. Don't scorn that. And don't rush through these times. Very important. We'll sing this last course again and you're dismissed. You're free to leave if you'd like to. But if you want to pray, the altars are open. Just take a few minutes and come up if you will, if you want to, if you need to. And just press in a little bit. Let the Lord just clean up the areas in your life.